Well, good morning, brothers. Our text this morning is Hebrews chapter 7. And um, I just couldn't do the blank thing. So I, I, the little blanks, we've got big, big blanks. Uh, but uh, hard for an old dog to new, learn new tricks. I'm an old seminary professor, so I'm, I'm used to teaching minds full of mush. And present company accepted, not, not implying that about you. <clears throat> but what I would do with seminary students is look out there, you know, for random acts of understanding occurring. <laughs> and uh, I'd go forward if I sensed some. I'd go back if I sensed there was trouble. So that's the way I kind of read uh, the audience. But I'll tell you again from the very beginning, Hebrews is a difficult book. It is a difficult book. It's very tightly organized very tightly argued. Uh, it is uh, uh, some of the most difficult, if not the most difficult, Greek in the New Testament. When seminary professors wanted to punish you, you'd say, they'd say, go translate Hebrews. It's very difficult. There's a word, we'll look at a word uh, today that only occurs, several words in Hebrews that only occur in Hebrews in the New Testament and there only once. And the other thing that makes it <clears throat> somewhat difficult, I'm saying this for your encouragement as you wrestle with it, is that the Hebrew mind didn't, didn't argue or make their points the way the Western mind does. We were taught in school, <clears throat> you know, you write a topic sentence, and then you, you, know, you write the sentence about what the paragraph's going to be about, and then you unpack it. Uh, and the Hebrew mind said, no, you put the main idea in the very center of what you're writing, and then you gradually work toward it with a parallel line up here and a parallel line down there and one closer in, closer in, closer in. And then once you've, once you've paralleled your way on both sides of it, you lead like a sandwich to the meat in the middle. So sometimes we have this, well, sometimes we have this trouble as part of my problem this week in studying this text we're, we're looking for what's the big idea up here, and then he's going to unpack it. But really, he's sort of circling like this, and then he nails it in the middle. So the whole book is, uh, is somewhat organized like that because we are right in the middle of it. And the, the whole point is that Jesus is a better priest. And it's, uh, we, we made some circles, or we feel, felt like we were making circles, but the the, the writer is gradually moving toward the center in the, in the Hebrew mind reading this, and that's who the, the Jews uh, and the, the Christian Jews were the ones who were primarily in focus here, and that's why this uh, is written as it is. Now, aren't you glad I don't do the blanks because I already didn't plan to say that, and I've already <clears throat> gotten off track. But uh, that's, that's an introduction to the way we're studying, the, way, the why it can be difficult now, with that in mind, let's look at the text. We'll begin reading in verse 11 of um, Hebrews, not Romans here, Hebrews chapter 7, verse 11. <clears throat> now, if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek? rather than one named after the order of Aaron. For when there is a change in the priesthood, there is necessarily a change in the law as well. For the one of whom these things are spoken belonged to another tribe 
from which no one else ever served at the altar. For it is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah, and in connection with that tribe, Moses said nothing about priests. This becomes even more evident when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek, who has become a priest not on the basis of a legal requirement concerning bodily descent, but by the power of an indestructible life. For it is witnessed of him, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. For on the one hand, a former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness, for the law made nothing perfect, but on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. And it was not without an oath... For those who formerly became priests were made such without an oath. But this one was made a priest with an oath by the one who said to him, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. Let's pray together. Lord, we pray that you would open our eyes to see the gospel, not just good news, but the best news. The gospel that Mike Rhodes has already talked about, that we have the perfect priest. Help our souls to arise, to shake off their guilty fears. And would we each leave today saying, Father, Abba, Father, thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ. Some of us for the thousandth time, others perhaps for the very first time. We pray in Jesus' name for his sake. God's people said together, amen. I'm going to fetch my water while I say that there is, we have a staff member here whose whose, uh, husband is battling cancer, has been battling cancer for a while. And uh, uh, it's a blood cancer of some kind, and he was in, it became... Uh, apparent uh, eventually that he uh, could possibly qualify for a bone marrow transplant. Well, that's a rare match, as you medical types know. But then after further testing, it was discovered he had uh, an additional protein of some kind that made his bone marrow even more rare. And in fact, the the, uh, experts who were dealing with him in another part of the state said, we really don't think there is a match possible. We've never encountered this kind of, this kind of blood, uh, this, this peculiar formation before. And so it's hard enough to find a bone marrow transplant, but to find one, this is, this is like finding a, a, a needle in a stack of needles. Well, miracle of miracles, uh, a bone marrow donor has been found with that perfect match, which when, when it was announced, of course, we all celebrate as staff, this is truly a miracle. The point of the story, though, is that a match couldn't be just close enough. It couldn't be just, he's got marrow, you, got, you need marrow, here, we'll put it together. That doesn't work. It couldn't even be that uh, you have, let's say, O positive bone marrow, and you, 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 that's what your need is. It had to be precisely the same. It had to be a precise match. And what the author is telling us in this passage throughout this whole book is that Jesus isn't just close enough. 
Jesus is precise. He is the only one who can solve your and my need for a Savior. Now, I've said that I want to teach you how I prepare a sermon, and you said that last week that you can study your Bible in a very effective way by asking these three questions of every text. What need for redemption is exposed by this text, either explicitly or implicitly? Well, our need exposed by this text and by this whole book is we need a Savior who is a perfect match for all of our needs of redemption. So our need is exposed. We need a perfect match. And the supply is that we have the Lord Jesus. That's the proposition today. God's supply is because Jesus, our priest, guarantees everything we need for our redemption, guarantees everything that we need for redemption, not just initially, but eternally, we must trust Him alone. Our need is we need a perfect match. God's supply is He has provided a perfect match in Christ. Our response, we must trust Him, not just once, but every day of our lives. Well, there are three uh, qualities exposed in this text of a good guarantee. We, the passage ends, doesn't it, with Jesus is the guarantor of a better covenant. There are three qualities for a good guarantee. The original is usually better than the extended warranty. And, the, uh, and then you need a permanent, not just a relative lifetime warranty, but a true lifetime warranty. And you need it sworn. You need it notarized. You need it sworn to by an oath. That's what we have in, in Jesus. And that's the kind of terminology or imagery that the author is using. What does it mean in verses 11 through 14? What does it mean that Jesus Christ is the original guarantee? He's better because He is the original. Let's look at it and let's work through these verses uh, together so that we understand uh, each one. Verse 11, now if the perfection, if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, For under it the people received the law. What further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek rather than the one named after the order of Aaron? Let me just try to explain that a little bit. The the original order, we learned last week, the original order of priesthood, we'll talk more about this in a moment, was Melchizedek. And what the author is telling us is that the Levitical order, now that means the sons of Levi, those are the, 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 the descendants of Moses and Aaron who were given responsibility for the sacrifices and for collecting the tithes and so forth, that that was not God's original plan. That when God put those, that order into place, He was reenacting what didn't work in the Garden of Eden. 
he is, as some people say, republishing the covenant of works in the, in the uh, Garden of Eden that didn't work. Remember, he puts Adam in the garden, and he says, now, if you do this, you keep all the commandments, you don't do what I tell you not to do, you do exactly what I tell you to do, then you will live forever. In theology, we call it the covenant of works. If you work perfectly, if you do the right things perfectly, you obey perfectly, then you'll live forever. You work, you'll be saved. Well, didn't last very long with Adam, didn't last very long with Eve. They rebelled. And so what did God do immediately? He said, chapter 3, Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, the uh, seed of the serpent, it's the devil, and all those who follow him, the seed of the serpent will strike against the heel of the seed of the woman, that's of Christ, and all of those who follow the Lord, he will strike against the heel, but the seed of the woman will crush the head of the serpent. We call that the proto-evangelium, the first gospel. The first preaching of the gospel in history in the Bible is in Genesis chapter 3. And God says immediately, look, He says immediately from the very beginning of creation, works righteousness doesn't work for humans. I'm still going to demand that people are saved by works, but I'm going to show you that you can't do it. It can't be your works. It has to be by the seed of the woman, by the descendant of the woman named Jesus Christ. So God is making that point again. That's the point. God is making that point again with Moses and the Mosaic law that, that characterizes Israel all the way up till the appearing of Christ. He is telling His people over and over again, sacrifice after sacrifice after sacrifice, you cannot work your way into heaven. I've proved that to you in the garden. I'm going to prove it to you for a couple of thousand years, and then I'm going to bring the seed of the woman. So, I don't know where I am in the outline already, but uh, what was the original? The original... <clears throat> was well, the original when he says, I've given you another priest after the order of Melchizedek. The order of Melchizedek, remember talking about a typology. Melchizedek represents something. And Melchizedek represents salvation by grace alone. The original plan of God was to save by grace alone. What was the original? The original plan of God was to save by grace alone. And it's illustrated in this Old Testament story. Stay with me now. It's illustrated in this Old Testament story of Melchizedek blessing Abraham. Remember that story we talked about last week in Genesis 14? Abraham whoops up on those, on those, uh, on those four kings who beat five kings. And then he comes out of, the, of, out of the battle, and, and Melchizedek meets him. And without Abraham saying a word, without Abraham bringing a sacrifice, 
without Abraham doing anything that would warrant obedience to, to, to bless, Melchizedek blesses him. Melchizedek is called the king of righteousness. Abraham has been made righteous in a different way. Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Abraham, at some point in his life, says, I can't do it. I can't make myself perfect. I need your righteousness. He received it as a gift. It's the foundation of Abraham's faith. It's the foundation of our faith. Melchizedek blesses him not because Abraham earned a blessing. Melchizedek blesses him because he has been made righteous by the righteousness of God. Do you follow me? So what is original? Original is the gospel. Original is salvation by grace alone. And Melchizedek blessing Abraham who received righteousness as a gift illustrates that. So what is meant by the law when, we, when, we, when, when he keeps referencing the law here? What does he mean? When he says the law has passed away, does that mean that we have no obligation any longer to obey, that there are no standards for us? Of course that's not right. But here's, what we have to under, here's where we have to catch up with the Hebrew mind. The Hebrew mind was able to distinguish the various ways law, the word law, was being used relative to its context. We, we know how to do that. For instance, when we, when we hear the word world, we have to say, well, I've got to understand what world means according to the context. If I said world only means planet, then if you go to visit Disney World, you'd think here is a whole planet devoted to Disney. Well, that doesn't make sense. You say, this is just the world according to Disney in this location. Or the wide world of sports. It's not a whole planet of sports. So we make that distinction according to context. the same way with law. When we read law in the Bible, we have to say, now, according to the context, how is it being used? What is being meant? So sometimes law means the Ten Commandments. And when law is referring to the Ten Commandments, the Ten Commandments abide forever. The Ten Commandments were woven into the creation. The Ten Commandments are summarized by the two great commandments, love your neighbor as yourself, love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. It's summarized by the weightier matters of the law, of justice, mercy, and faithfulness. Those things are timeless. So when, that, when it's being used that way, it means that's always endures. At other times... The law refers to the civil laws of the Old Testament, like build a fence around your roof and don't mix two kinds of cloths and that sort of thing. That's civil law. Sometimes it refers to ceremonial law, the offering of sacrifices. That is the primary way that the writer of Hebrews is using it here. He's referring primarily to that sacrificial system that occurred in the temple. So when he is, when usually when he says the law has passed away, he's referring to those ceremonial laws or civil laws. He's never referring to the Ten Commandments. 
He is, however, saying the same theological principle applies to the keeping of the Ten Commandments as it does to everything else. You can't do it on your own. You need the righteousness of Christ to enable you to keep the Ten Commandments uh, as well as, um, and all of their implications. So what didn't work? What did not work was this priesthood, these sacrifices that God put into place, not because He thought they would work. You know, some, some, some theological groups think that's the case. Some theological groups think that God said, boy, I mean, the thing in, in, the, thing in the Garden of Eden didn't work. Now let's try, uh, let's try to put in a sacrificial system and see if they can keep those laws. Well, that didn't work. Let me come up with a plan C. That wasn't God's intention. God, God put these sacrifices into place in order to prove you can't be saved by works righteousness. And how did He make that point? Because they're constantly slitting the throats of bulls and beasts and lambs and rams throughout. They, 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 they can't spill enough blood to finally atone for their sin. They have to do it over and over and over again. Uh, and, and furthermore, not only did, you know, if, if those sacrifices worked, they would have worked. And God would have said, okay, now everything's fine. Our relationship is healed. Don't, don't kill any more animals. But it didn't work. He kept doing it. Furthermore, they said, it doesn't work because our consciences are never clear. I never feel relieved from my guilt because as soon as I kill one sheep, I think, oh, it's about a month from now, I got to do it again. Or a week from now, I got to kill two turtle doves or whatever it is. If it's a big sin, I got to drag in a big bull. I mean, it just, it just never cleanses my conscience. It didn't work. And God intended it not to work. Now, let me say, I'm going to hasten on to say, I'm getting a little bit out of order again, but I'm, I'm, uh, I don't want anybody to leave without understanding this. So how were people saved during that time? It wasn't that God said, okay, I'm going to make it impossible to be saved for a while. People were saved in the same way. They looked at those sacrifices, and by faith, we have examples of those who said, you know, these sacrifices don't work. But God said back in the garden that He would send uh, a, a, a divine human uh, redeemer who would fulfill the law in my place. And by faith, they would look forward to Christ and embrace Him. These were, this was an object lesson reaffirming to them constantly, you cannot be saved by your own merit, by your own works. All right, so Jesus is the original. Jesus is the priest who uh, was God's original plan. When the original is working, it should remain in place. When the clicker is upside down, it didn't go in the right direction. When the original is working, it should remain in place. 
when the substitute does not work, it should be replaced. That's the point he's making now in verses 12 and following. He says, for when there is a change in the priesthood, there is necessarily a change in the law as well. For the one of whom these things are spoken belong to another tribe from which no one has ever served at the altar. For it is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah, and in connection with that tribe, Moses said nothing about priest. How did the order of, of the priesthood change? We studied this last week, so this can go more quickly. The, remember, the Aaronic priesthood under Moses' regime, you could only be a priest if you could prove that you're a descendant of Aaron. You had to bring in your birth papers and say, okay, you qualify to be a priest. So that, that was the order in the Mosaic law, the law of sacrifices. But Jesus was of the tribe of what? Judah. There's no mention in Mosaic legislation of, a tri- of, of Judah having a right to have a priest. And furthermore, Melchizedek is not from the line of Aaron. He couldn't have been. Aaron wasn't born yet. Aaron was a descendant of Abraham, and Melchizedek blesses Abraham. So these Jews who are reading this book are thinking, wait a minute, I thought that the only way we could get right with God was offering sacrifices in the temple through the Aaronic priesthood, and yet now you're showing us this text from Genesis and Psalms and from Jesus that says the only priest who will be able to make us right with God is, is from the, the line of Judah, and there's, there's no way we can put the line of Judah together with the line of Aaron. The priesthood has changed back to the original. That's the point. It's not that, it's not that God thought that this was going to work, It didn't work, so he's trying something else. This was always the original plan to save by grace. He puts in this giant illustration called the Mosaic uh, Regulation, Ceremonial and Civil. They obviously don't work. He shuts that down, and he says, Now I want you to be very clear about what I always originally planned. I'm going to save you with a priest who can in no way be connected to these Aaronic priests because I don't want you ever to be confused about that. I don't want you to ever think that the law can save you. I've taken it completely out of the Aaronic priesthood. I've put it right back where it was originally. This is the only way you can be saved. You need a Savior, a Redeemer, a priest who is precisely fitted to your need. So... What didn't change? What didn't change was the essence of the Ten Commandments. I've already covered that. And what did change was the priesthood. The priesthood that didn't work is substituted for the priesthood of Jesus Christ, which does work, the point that's made in verses 13 and 14. So I'm going to go on to the next major point. Number two, we need not only a guarantee that is original. Extended warranty never is as good as the original. Even if it covers all the same things, it's really expensive. We want the original 
guarantee, the original plan of God, which is I'm going to save you by the substitution of my perfect last lamb. We also, <clears throat> we also need a guarantee that is permanent, permanent. My family was <clears throat> in business when I was growing up, and uh, everything we sold had a lifetime guarantee. But it made us, it was always intriguing to me to read the fine print of what lifetime meant. And uh, you lawyers know that lifetime means only what the seller says it's going to mean. Lifetime, the lifetime warranty will be good as long as I'm alive. Or the lifetime warranty will be good only as long as my business survives. Or my lifetime will be good as long as the product survives. <laughs> you know, we need a real lifetime permanent guarantee. And that's who we have in Jesus Christ. How does the author make the point? Look at verse 15. <clears throat> this becomes even more evident that another priest, we might say, must arise in the likeness of Melchizedek. You understand that now? It might, we need another priest to arise in the, in the likeness of a Melchizedek because this old priesthood thing with the Levites didn't work and God intended to show us that it couldn't work. Who has become a priest not on the basis of a legal requirement concerning bodily descent, that is, proving his birthright, but by the power of a what? An indestructible life. Now, there's a word that occurs not only once in Hebrews, but only once in the New Testament. And uh, I think God is making a point to us about that. This life of Jesus Christ for us is totally unique. I know that's redundant, but it is unique. He is the only life the only priest who is indestructible, whose life is indestructible, there is no expiration. The reason they had to keep getting new priests, the reason they had to say it's going to be from the order of Melchizedek because the old priest kept dying. They bury one priest, they got to raise up another one because they got to keep offering those sacrifices. None of those priests had an indestructible life. Each of those priests was mortal. So he says, our priest, according to verses 15, 17, 18, our priest is indestructible because of his resurrection. His life also, what, uh, his life is also uh, indestructible. Um, because his life is unique. And his priesthood is indestructible and has no expiration because it is the perfect merger of royalty and priesthood. Perfect merger of royalty and priesthood. Now, here we got to get into the Hebrew mind again. The only place where we find this <clears throat> order of Melchizedek is in Psalm 110, verse 4. You see the little indention there? We, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. That comes from Psalm 110, verse 4. 
And here's how it seems that realization came to David. Nobody had said that before. Nobody, um, nobody but David had had that particular insight that you must that that the Messiah must be a priest according to the order of Melchizedek. And this is how it it seems to have come with David. David, as a king, had to read, had to have his devotions every day, had to read the Bible every day. And he has the books, Genesis through the histories. Not all the histories have been written yet because they're being written about him too. So he has mostly the books of Moses in addition to what he's writing himself. But he's reading these books of Moses. He's reading the book of the law. And he reads over and over again um, the, that, uh, that, there, that uh, a king cannot be a priest. And a priest can't be a king. And he knows that. So whenever he offers a sacrifice, he has to do it through a priest. There's a man named Uzziah in Second Chronicles, a king who tried to order, uh, offer a sacrifice and, and uh, bad things happened to him. So David knows that. David knows that the priest's role can't be merged with the king role in the Mosaic law. And yet... By revelation, he understands that a new priest is coming who will combine the two, priest and king. And so he, he realizes God has put this mosaic thing, he's put these sac this sacrificial system in here to teach us a major point that we cannot be saved by works righteousness. We need a king of righteousness who in himself is righteous and has so much righteousness, he can give it to other people. And that can't happen with our priests because our priests are sinners too. Our, our kings are sinners too. Our kings are not kings of righteousness. So, David says in Psalm 110, I get it now. God is going to bring us a person, a divine person who has all righteousness in himself, so much righteousness, he can give it to us personally as a priest by combining those two perfectly with an indestructible life, a life that is more, it, it defeats death with the resurrection. He will perfectly and permanently supply my need. He has no expiration. Because he has an indestructible life. And that indestructible life, remember the hymn? Ever lives above for me to intercede. This king of righteousness supplied our righteousness by his death. And he continues to supply our righteousness by his life at the right hand of the Father. We, hung, we sang it in the hymn again. Five bleeding wounds he bears received on Calvary. They pour effectual prayers. They kindly plead for me. Remember when Jesus was ascended? He left in that body that ate breakfast with his disciples, that body that they were in, they saw the wounds, and it is Christ in that body 
who still exists somewhere. Jesus in bodily form is somewhere in God's, in God's reality. And he's at the right hand of the Father. And he's saying, forgive him, Father. Forgive him. Remember. Remember. It's here. I paid the price. I continue to plead for you. Father, have mercy on him. Forgive him. Forgive him of his sins. Why can you be assured you are forgiven? Why can you receive relief from your guilty conscience? Because Jesus is continually interceding for you. His once-for-all sacrifice has been made. And even if you could make a sacrifice, it would never be sufficient, never be permanent, and you couldn't make it in an indestructible body. It's permanent. Third point. Third point is that it is a sworn covenant. It is a sworn guarantee. This thing is giving up on me. Just look at your notes. <clears throat> the, 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 cov- the, the, the guarantee that we need is one that is sworn to by an oath. You have that on your notes, don't you? Sworn. And there's a parallel with Abraham. Go back to chapter 6, verse 13. Abraham received the promise, and it was sworn to him. Let me remind you of that incredible picture of the way the, 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 uh, the covenant was sworn to Abraham. Abraham was told, you... you you, you trust me for your righteousness. Okay, I don't have any righteousness. Give me your righteousness. I've given you my righteousness. And then Abraham's going to have times like we do. I'm not sure that worked. And God says, okay, I'm going to prove to you that it worked. I'm going to give you a visual image that proves to you that I'm going to save you by grace alone. And so he, he says, uh, he, he, he puts... Moses into Abraham. Abraham goes to sleep and he has a dream. And Abraham, God says, I want you to take all these animals and I want you to cut them in two. I want you to take that that big old bull, I want you to cut him right down the middle. I want you to lay him out like this, two halves. And uh, then we're going to walk through it together. Now that was a common way of making a covenant or a contract. Two parties would cut, a, cut an animal in half, they'd lay it apart, and then they'd walk through it together. And what they were saying is, okay, if I break my part of the covenant, then you can split me right down the middle. Too. You can kill me. And, but in this one, God says, <clears throat> we're going to make a promise. I'm going to be your God, and you're going to be my people. Let's walk through this, let's walk through this bull together. And whichever one of us fails in the covenant, this will happen to him. What happened? Abraham broke that covenant. Isaac, Jacob, Moses, Aaron, all the kings, all the people of the Old Testament, everyone who's ever lived broke that covenant. God has never broken his covenant. So who's going to pay the price? Should be us, right? 
But who did pay the price? God's lamb put on the cross, slaughtered. Though we broke the covenant, God said, I will be broken for your penalty. He swore by an oath. He swore by an oath that cost his precious son his life. And the same God who swore by an oath to Abraham, I'm going to save you by grace even if it kills me, is the same God who says, I'm swearing by an oath that Melchizedek, a priest in the order of Melchizedek, will be your priest. The priest will be the sacrifice. Jesus Christ, the great priest, will be the sacrifice. And I swear, God says, I swear by myself it will work. Well, can you get better news than that? That's good news. He has provided the guarantee. He is the guarantor of a better covenant because He is the original. He is permanent. And God has sworn to it by an oath. Let me give you a final illustration to hopefully clinch the nail in your heart and mind today. When I lived in Missouri, I had to get a new driver's license like I am facing here. And the, and the process in Missouri was so difficult at the time, it's, uh, I, it, it explains why I haven't tried to get one here. I'll eventually get one here, but it was, it was very, very difficult to get a license. It was very difficult to get a license tag at the time in Missouri. And... Uh, it, the, the, the difficulty came because there was a, when you enter the license bureau where I went, there was a table up here on a, a dais like this, and behind it, two very threatening, very intimidating, matriarchal women sat. I'm not saying anything about matriarchy, I'm not saying anything about women, I'm just giving you the fact. This is, there are three judges that set up here. And you'd go in and you'd take a number, you know, 1,015 or whatever it is. And you'd sit in this mass of people like this. And it was entirely as quiet as a library because everybody was listening to these women and what they demanded. And so some bloke, you know, would come up there and he would say, I need a license tag. And they would say, well, where's your original birth certificate? Or where is the uh, imprint of the left, your left foot when you were born? Or where is the birthright to your firstborn child? And it just is impossible. And he, he'd you know, fumble through his papers, and he wouldn't have it, and they'd say, next! And, and then half the room would empty because they didn't have their, the imprint of their, their left foot foot there. So they, you know, we'd fumble through our papers and then you'd leave. Next, they come up, you know, the next thing, you know, I need your papers back from World War II. No, I don't have it. Next. So after one of those rejections, I looked through and I didn't have that particular paper. So I start slinking away. And the, the head matriarch looked back over the crowd and she says, where are you going? 
And I said, I just, I just got to go get another paper. What paper? I said, I just don't have the right paper. Come up, come here. Get up right here. Come, come right here. I said, well, you'd say, now, now, where's, your, where's the imprint of your left foot? And I said, I don't have it. She said, and then miraculously, she would reach under here like this, and she'd say, there. Now, what else do you not have? I said, I don't have any papers from World War II. I wasn't born by World War II. There. I needed like six things. And miraculously, they came from under the desk. And just, and then here's your tag. She provided everything that I needed that I couldn't have provided because it was a ridiculous, ridiculously tall command. Your Savior's done the same, if indeed He's your Savior. And if He's not, may today be the day.